This is Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Spence Denny. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. John Lamb, good morning to you. Good morning, Spence. We finally cracked it. 40 degrees in Adelaide. It's mm. the first for the season. And hey, what a week. I mean, we had uh, 30 to 40 millimetres of rain went across Adelaide and the hills and a lot of humidity. And it's the humidity we'll focus on this morning, Spence. Okay. Yeah. There are a few spots and rots out there in uh, the fruit gardens and... The fruit gardens, I think, also need attention. So uh, harvest is pretty well in full swing for stone fruits in particular. So we might take a look at uh, fruit trees. And our special guest this morning is John Stevens. He's a horticultural advisor and he's going to uh, focus on what to do with your fruit trees after harvest. Many people sort of say, right, harvest was over. Uh, we'll turn our backs and uh, they can look after themselves. And that's not Good practice, according to John Stevens. So stay tuned. He'll comment on that. But uh, we also would like to know what kind of a harvest you're having. Well, I mentioned earlier this morning um, that uh, we had our listener who was picking tomatoes way bigger than she'd had in the past from the Barossa, a 600-gram Apollo. That's a big tomato, isn't it? It's a big tomato from an Apollo. That's a big tomato. Uh, And a number of people text through with their tomato stories as well because a lot of what I'm hearing, I haven't actually, the only tomato I've got this year, John, is a self-sown one, which popped up about three weeks ago. Interesting, because self-sown tomato plants often are the best. They are better simply because... um, as seedlings, you move them around and you mess up their little root system, whereas a self-sown, nobody touches the root system, so it goes down and out, and you've got a nice healthy root system followed by a healthy plant. Okay. Well, I'm, I will report on its progress in weeks to come. Because <laughs> I don't imagine we'll get any fruit of it for quite some time, and that's been the case for a lot of people I've spoken with who've got a bumper harvest, a bumper, a, a huge volume of tomatoes on their plant, but they're not ripening because they haven't had... The sun this week has probably changed that because of that 40-odd degree day we had. Big change around, yes. Mm. It, it, we, the season started off, it was mild and then it was warm, but it wasn't uh, lots of sunshine. And that's being reflected in the fact that lots of healthy tomato plants and some people have got lots of tomatoes, but they're not ripening. They will. And, and just on that one, soil temperatures. We need to take a look at soil temperatures later on in the program, but they are nice and comfortably warm. Okay. So, uh, and, and talking of feedback, uh, Spence, it would be beautiful to get some feedback on the harvest. I'd like to know what kind of a harvest you're having. Give it a score out of 10. Uh, is it better than last season or are there problems? Send us a text or send Spence a text and he can work it into the program. Okay. Well, I just, I might just um, quickly um, weave in a, a couple of the messages we had about the tomatoes. Oh, Anne's text where he said a huge crop of peaches, plums and cherries this year. So good for you, Anne. I, I got exactly two plums off my plum this year. But I think it's you, you solved that for me last week because I didn't do the right thing after I harvested a bumper crop last year. And so I took your advice and I tip pruned it during the week. And when it loses its leaves, I'll give it the lose. I'll give it the, the the more savage prune later on. Ah, well done, because that's what uh, John Stevens, horticultural advisor, will be talking about later in the program. Why after harvest is pretty important, not so much for this season, but for what you're about to receive or not next season. Okay. Uh, so via tom- via text, the tomato stories we've had through from Anne. Um, she says, um, I have made two batches of tomato relish and frozen six tubs of pasta sauce and four tubs of tomato, zucchini and onion, uh, which is obviously a nice little bumper harvest. Also from Linda from Sandy Creek, she says, we grow three varieties of cherry tomati, tomatoes and have been picking a kilogram each day for several weeks. Good heavens. That's- Once tomato plants start to, to set fruit and, uh, they, and if you've got a nice healthy plant they just keep on keeping on and mm. uh, I think uh, it'll be fascinating to know what the weather is going to be like for autumn and Darren Ray will talk about that next week so I won't steal his thunder but I think we could be in for a good late uh, summer vegetable season. Well, Sandy goes on to say they're very sweet and the grandkids love them. So getting your grandchildren to like tomatoes early, that's, <laughs> yes. that is a good thing. Uh, and also, hi, Spence, this is from Gino. He says, I have eight tomato plants and I've had a good crop, so many 
tomatoes that I gave them away and made sauce. They are very big also. That's from Gino. one 891 is the number to call. It doesn't have to be around fruit. Any other issues you have with the garden, maybe your roses are starting to show the effect of the humidity that we had during the week as well. Um, any other questions around fruit trees, anything that's going on in the garden, John Lamb is here at your disposal. one three hundred triple two eight nine one. You mentioned earlier on that uh, the gardens are looking pretty good, particularly after that uh, rain we had and the humidity. And many people walk out into their garden after the rain the uh, next morning and think, doesn't the garden look good? And why is it? that the plants actually look as though they've almost put on about 10% of, of extra growth and they're, they're very, very happy. Why is it so that they look so good after a rain? Have you figured that one out? No. <laughs> well, I'm assuming it's because they've, you know, they've, they've drawn up enough moisture to really plump up the, the foliage and things like that. Well, my theory, and it's just a theory, and it'd be nice if somebody really knows the answer, but I figure out that during summer the plants are using a lot of energy just to take up the moisture and push it out through their leaves to keep themselves cool. But after that kind of a a rain system and the humidity, and when you've got high humidity, the plant doesn't have to transpire as much. So the energy and, and the moisture which would normally go to keep the plant cool doesn't have to do that anymore. It gets transferred into growth. And so the plant ah, can, okay. can actually grows a little bit extra simply because of that energy diversion. Now, that's a theory, a lamb theory, and I've got no idea whether it's correct. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, and I, I love the um, – I have had a meteorologist explain this to me once before, but I can't remember what the explanation was, that why, why nitrogen is released when we have um, a thunderstorm and how that nitrogen then transfers to the rain that falls down and gives the garden a real boost. Yes, and it may be it's not the plant that actually reacts to that. It could be the little microbes in the soil, and it, it stimulates them. So there's lots of things going on there that uh, not everybody knows the reasons why. We head to McGill first, and Anne is on the phone. Hello, Anne. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I've got um, a lily pillies which I planted in September last year, um, and I rang up and John said, plant them now while the, the last of the warm weather was there before the cold weather. They have grown extremely well, and I'm growing them as a screening hedge. They are now already um, probably about nearly four foot high. I have pruned them uh, a little bit. I've chip pruned them when I, they started growing, uh, but now they're getting really quite tall and a little bit lanky at the top. Um, I'm just wondering if I can chop the tops off or what, how I can create a really nice, thick, dense... Right. And if you want a hedge, you need to not just chop the top off, you need to perhaps be a little bit uh, uh, tougher than that. Um, what is needed is a large number of structural branches. And if you just take the tips out, you'll have little short branches up the top but what you want them is lots of uh, structural branches very close down the bottom. Um, and just watch th- what's going to happen in the first two weeks in February. Um, Darren Ray, I think, is suggesting that after the, about the middle of February, uh, the higher temperatures, the heat wave temperatures, probably may disappear. So wait until probably the, uh, the back end of February and then be tough and take a look at your tree, and there might be already, say, three or four long, strong branches. They're the ones you need to cut back by probably about 50%. That's being tough. But what that will do, it will stimulate very strong, vigorous branches from below where you've cut. And that's what you want. Those, and, and they will produce strong branches, and they'll be structural branches. And so you end up with lots of strong structural branches very close to the ground and that will give you the basis for your hedge. If you don't do that, then what you'll get is uh, long skinnies and um, when you try and uh, cut the, uh, the, the hedge back, it'll never look the same. You'll have your lots of foliage up towards the top of the hedge and it'll go bare down below and that's what you don't want. So uh, be tough be, uh, and, and just be patient and I think that should give you the solution that you're looking for. Hmm. We're talking about nitrogen in the, um, in the rain. Yes. This is from uh, Bryson 
who is an agronomist. Thank you. That's thank, what we want. Thank you, Bryson. He says there is 78% of nitrogen in the Earth's atmosphere, which when it rains comes down with the raindrop, so the garden gets a boost of nitrogen when it rains. There you go. Simple as that. Simple as that. <laughs> um, now, on the subject of uh, the crop, uh, Mal from Pasadena writes, having a bumper crop of figs. After a huge pruning last year, the figs are huge in size. Also pruned the mandarin tree. And after a dozen mandarins last year, we have hundreds of them this year and can't wait until they all ripen up. Uh, Wendy from Evanston Park says we have loads of tomatoes, but they're very slow to ripen. Not complaining, they are still delicious. And also Tony from Ross Trevor says tomato season this year, far better than last year. More than 12 kilograms from Mighty Red so far. No ripening problems in Ross Trevor. How about that? How about that? Lots of success out there. And uh, if you've got a few problems, uh, let's know about those as well. I think sometimes uh, no, you don't always have winners. <laughs> sometimes uh, we can learn from both the winners and the losers. Mary's on the phone from Victor Harbour. Morning, Mary. Oh, good morning. Can you hear me all right? We certainly can. Uh, I have a problem with a phygella. I've had it in for 10 or so years and it flowers, but it never sets fruit. Fascinating. Yep. Uh, we're getting a number of calls about Fijoas, and uh, they're doing the right thing. They're growing, they're flowering, but they're not setting fruit. And the reason why. Uh, Fijoas can take quite a long time to settle down, and many people will find that after seven or eight years, uh, they are starting to get regular fruits. Um, we need to know a little bit about how it's growing in, in terms of um, what kind of conditions it's growing in. Are they what the, I would call tough, or are they? ideal uh, and maybe a little bit better than ideal um, could you give us a description of what's happening there I'd say it was tough I, I'm on sand all the way down um, I've tried to build it up with compost and everything um, it's next to a um, pomegranate whether that's taking all the nutrition but it flowers very well, but it just doesn't set fruit. Yes, the fijoa is incredibly tough. And once it's established, it's got very good tolerance to heat and drought, but to getting it to fruit. Um, have you fruit, put on any particular kind of a fertiliser? And if so, what? Um, mostly organic fertiliser, the pellets, yes. um, but also compost uh generally speaking. All right. Well, what I think is happening is the, uh, the compost is breaking down and releasing probably a fair amount of nitrogen. Uh, the pellets you've got are certainly got... Uh, quite a lot of uh, nitrogen, and depending on whose brand you're getting. Um, some of the fertilisers, uh, the pellet, chicken pellets uh, that have been blended for roses are probably not so bad in uh, from a, a fruit and vegetable point of view because they have a little bit of extra potash. And that's where we're leading, I think, uh, uh, I think uh, Mary, is uh, you've probably got a good tree, it's growing, and it just needs the right combination of... And I'd be getting some sulphate of potash and working that into the next time you fertilise. In fact, uh, I'd get a little bit of sulphate of potash now. We actually can buy liquid potash. You buy a little bottle and you just water it down and water that into the root system and that will give you a little bit of extra potash and see whether that actually makes a difference if it's flowering. Potash doesn't make flowers or make a plant can't make a plant flower. But once it's flowering, it can help it sort of stay there and, and also improve the fruit uh, quality as, as it gets going. So... Um, and the other thing is, you say you're on sandy soil. Just be very, very careful with sandy soils. It's very easy to get the, uh, nice you water and then uh, you, you walk away and uh, the tree goes into, it dries out and it goes into a bit of stress. And it's what's happening to the root system, I think, is more important than what's happening to the top. So um, mulch. If you haven't already, um, make sure that the soil is kept moist, just moist, not over wet, moist all the time, and a little bit of sulphur of potash. And I'd like to think that probably, uh, if not this season, by next season, uh, you're getting fruit. Uh, if it's strong and it's growing lots of vigour, uh, I think a little bit of tip, summer pruning, a little bit of tip pruning. Don't go um, uh, berserk on it. Just uh, uh, take off any strong, vigorous branches, tip them back. Uh, that, again, makes it work a little bit harder and... Uh, that's all to do with the hormone balance within the plant.
Oh. Mary, uh, thank you. And you know, there is only one way to eat feijoas, uh, <laughs> and that is messily. <laughs> you just rip them off the tree and you tear them apart and you just suck out the, the, the contents of the feijoa. They are yes, magnificent. Yes, I love it. Certainly delicious, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Vitex, a couple of others, and there's some lines free at the moment 1300 891. Looks like the Barossa's having a good season, um, John, because this is from Greenock. And um, the text says, we've picked over 30 kilograms of pears and still going. A bumpy, bumpy year this year. That's nice to hear. Wow, that's a lot of pears. And uh, in Gawler West, okay, on the edge of the Barossa. Good morning, John. Good success with my Roma tomatoes at Gawler West this year. And my first year turning them into a sauce was great fun. That's from Scott. So the plants out there have certainly benefited from the fact that we haven't had the heat waves to give them the stress. And if you think of it, if you look at the rains we've had, particularly in January, really uh, the soil profile at the moment is full. And we're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks, uh, just the importance of moisture in the soil. And right now, following the rains we've had during January, the, the water falls down and it keeps on soaking down. And in many gardens, the water has actually got below the main root system. If you've got, a, say, a, a lawn, you know, the roots are probably in the top 20 centimetres. If you shrubs and plants like that, they might go down 30 centimetres and your fruit trees might even go down 40 centimetres. But the moisture is, is gone down even beyond that. And so <laughs> it's not, uh, we can't use it once it gets beyond the old root system. But, uh, yeah. but the plants know that. And, and because of the soil moisture being uh, uh, filling up the whole soil, profile uh, that's reacted uh, or, or result, resulting in that extra wonderful growth we're seeing and if we've got flowers and fruits and we're looking after them we have a bonanza this is talk about gardening with john lamb and spence Denny on abc radio adelaide south australia and broken hill via tech spence the rain has made my kumquat tree go bunter I think that is a, a real horticultural term. <laughs> uh, so thank you, uh, Frosty. Uh, and this is, uh, I'll just, just, I've got to go back to this one because it just came through before. Here we go. Uh, Spence and John, my grapes uh, got hit with powdery mildew before I could spray with eco-pest oil. The leaves curl, the leaves curl at the edges, powdery mildew, and one or two bunches of young green grapes. What can I do, please? Well, the important thing is watch, and soon as you see the first signs of powdery mildew, that's the time to spray. And if you spray with an eco-fungicide or one of the uh, uh, softer organic pr- pr- materials, you'll get a very, very quick uh, and, and effective control. Uh, but once it's well established, uh, you're, th- what you can do is pretty well limited mm. and uh, you probably need something a little bit stronger. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about your spots and rots in just a minute, if we can. Uh, but um, Gail's on the phone, has a problem with her lawn. She's in Murray Bridge. Hello, Gail. Oh, good morning. How are you going? Good, thanks. Um, Look, we've had a great year because of the rain and our lawn has sort of been really good and I haven't had to water it too often, but um, I did when it was dry a couple of weeks ago and um, now it's just got yellow patches all over it and I'm just wondering if we... Is it maybe a beetle or something like that? No, you need to look at those yellow patches very, very closely and uh, just see, can you see any insect? Um, And there could be, uh, if you can't see any insects on the surface, uh, maybe get a little trowel and dig down under the yellow patches and see if you can find little grubs. Little, oh, okay. Uh, and uh, they could be munching away at the root systems. Uh, and if there is, uh, there's a, a, a new uh, a new lawn grub control, and that's what it's called, lawn grub control. And it contains, right. contains what I call a new age chemical. It's called acelaprin. Acelaprin is brilliant. In it. It, 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 we're getting away from chemicals that actually kill and poison, uh, they have an effect on the, chem- on the insect itself. And this one just stops the insects from, uh, from moving. It affects their muscles. And so it, it has very little uh, adverse effect on the rest of the environment ar- around it. And so uh, uh, look for that one uh, lawn grub control. There are lots of other lawn grub controls, but um, it, that, uh, that could be your problem. Take a look also, if you see any little webbing 
on it. Uh, it would appear that red spider mite is, a, is turning up as a big problem. And those of you that get the uh, Good Gardening newsletter and read uh, the lawn blog from uh, Stephen Palm, he's got a wonderful blog on red spider mite. <laughs> and if you click on that, you'll actually see a lovely photo of it and, and uh, that you'll soon recognise, is that the problem or not? And uh, being typical Stephen, as he does on this program very often, Spence, he's very good in what to do in terms of control, lots of alternatives. So uh, it's, it could be grubs, it could be uh, spites, uh, um, uh, red spider mites, and there could be other problems. There are many things that cause yellow patches. Um, and uh, if either of those two are not the problem, uh, consider getting a soil wetting agent. It could be that you've got wet patches, uh, dry patches there. And when the, the water does uh, fall, it, 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 it runs away from the, that area. So a soil oh, that, wetting... That's a- always a possibility, yes. yes. So, you haven't got a dog, have you, Gail? I have, um, but it's not its not her because um, uh, it, it, it's too much of it and it's sort of appeared, you know, reasonably suddenly, really. Yeah, um, no. So, so no, no, it, it wouldn't be her. But th- 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 that was going to be my other question, that if I do put stuff on the lawn, is it going to hurt my dog? <laughs> no, well, the celebrant certainly won't uh, and uh, the uh, soil wetting agent certainly won't. So I think uh, uh, take a look at, at that and uh, in terms of uh, red spider mite, uh, you can put on... Uh, uh, what would you use there? Um, I'd use uh, wettable sulphur, wettable sulphur, and again, just make sure that uh, while it's wet, uh, the dog's inside. Once it's dry on the on the lawn, it's certainly not going to affect the the dogs. Mm, yeah, my my yellow patches. I'm pretty confident, Gail, are corgi induced. <laughs> 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 hey, Gail, good luck with that, and thank you for your call. Uh, someone asked the question about feijoas. Do they need? Do you need two feijoas? Uh, you'll get better results if you've got two. Right. Yes. yes. Um, well, just for cross-pollination. Yes, yeah. Oh. But, but I mean, uh, one feijoa by itself, it, it feels a bit lonely, but it should produce fruit. But if you've got uh, uh, two, you, you may get improved production. Mm, okay. Um, someone says, I took your advice and misted the garden on Tuesday a few times and my plants appreciated. I did the same. I missed my garden after your advice the other day. Oh, during hot weather, yeah, it makes weather. all the difference, yeah. yes. Mm. Yeah. And don't all just miss the plants, uh, particularly if you've got courtyards and you've got lots of container plants. Uh, hose down the ground. The, 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 you're in the property, you've got tiles there. Hose it down, and I've put more water on the ground than I do uh, in, you know, on the leaves of the plants in misting them down. And what that does is the moisture evaporates and it gives you those humid conditions we call, we're talking about. And if you've got humid conditions around and the leaves, they don't have to transpire as rapidly and they sort of just stay in much better condition. A number of people have texted through about their self-sowing tomatoes as well. Um, someone says, I'm um, spending way too much time picking tomatoes at the moment. I only grow self-seeding ones. And um, they've routinely sprouted for about 16 years. Yes. So that's lovely. And Many, uh, just on that, uh, uh, the best tomato reports come in from people that got self-sown tomatoes on their compost heap. Yeah. And someone says, morning, John and Spence. My tomato bush is self-sown in my worm farm. <laughs> oh, that's going to get plenty of nutrition there. And it's providing lots of fruit right now. How long will the plant last, asks our texter. Well, so long as it's got a healthy root system and uh, the conditions are relatively warm, I think you'll find that uh, they'll keep on going probably until uh, the end of autumn. Bear in mind, there are still 16 weeks left before the end of the season. Mm. That's a lot of grow time. It is. Uh, Let's take a call from Angus, who is at Torrens Park. Hello, Angus. Yeah, good morning. How are you, Spence? Hello, John. Good, thanks, mate. What's your problem? Uh, I've got, I, I said on the phone, I've got a dwarf gum. I've actually got a uh, Carimbia ficifolia, which doesn't seem to be doing too much. Um, flowering okay, leaves look okay, but it just seemed to have stopped at about two and a half metres. Um, wondering if there's anything you could advise to help move it along. Uh, is it a dwarf? Well, I think, uh, did you say it was a dwarf gum? No, no, a Carimbia ficifolia. I'm not sure. A precious pearl is probably the. Um, but there are the the Physifolia, the the Carimbias. They are well. You can buy uh, dwarf forms, Mm. um, and they're on a special rootstock. Uh, and right. if, it's, if it's one of the new named uh, varieties, that's about the height that they'll grow to. 
Um, ah, okay. So have a look at the label, and, and that'll tell yeah. you that if it's a standard uh, uh, physophilia, then you know you've got a tree that's going to grow uh, probably uh, six or seven meters, or five or six meters, depending on your growing conditions, and uh, three or four meters wide. But your dwarf versions, and I'm hoping that we can talk about that in a fair amount of detail uh, when I can find time to work it into the program. Uh, but there is a, a range of uh, uh, varieties of, of gum trees and they're absolutely brilliant they've been nominated as as one of those varieties of, of plants which are uh, heat tolerant and, and uh, there's a, a range of different colors and, and they've just been grafted onto a special rootstock which keeps them relatively small and they're absolutely ideal for growing in courtyards in you know medium-sized courtyards but uh, more about that later. Okay. Angus, and, and th- these are the ones that they actually come up with like a, a mass of um, of flowers too, oh, don't they? Oh, brilliant. Brilliant, yeah. aren't they? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I know the ones you're talking about. They're just beautiful. Uh, thank you for your call. Um, we'll, we'll head to John Stevens, former lead singer of Noisework shortly. Also happens to be a consulting horticulturalist. <laughs> but first to the hills, Henry's there. G'day, Henry. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, I've got a, uh, a cherry tree which is now starting to bear. Uh, in the last two seasons, when I've after the crop, I've had an infestation of cherry grubs. Now I've managed to control them with Success Plus, but uh, is there something else I should be doing? Well, if you are using Success Ultra, uh, you shouldn't need anything else. Um, when you see them, if you're spraying, as soon as you start to see the activity, if you spray, the good thing about that particular chemical, apart from its very low toxicity, is it's just a natural natural light, a bacterium, which has been sort of made into a product which you spray onto the plants. And again, it's translaminar, which means it goes into the leaf and stays there for some time. Most of the chemicals, insecticides, you spray and if it gets rained they get washed off whereas uh, Success Ultra is, is translaminar and that's very, very important in terms of uh, long, a longer term control. Um, if you've, you've said you've used that. Uh, 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 what's happening? Oh, the, the, it's, it's certainly got rid of them. Um, I'm wondering if I should, should be using it as a preventative rather than uh, once no, they're there. No, no, no. Keep your eye on it. As soon as you see them there, there's no point in putting it on unless you know when they're going to uh, uh, hatch out uh, and, and, and uh, the, the moth or the, uh, the insects will come in and, and lay their eggs. But uh, yeah, that's not easy to determine unless you've got the right kind of uh, monitoring systems. Uh, no, I, I think wait until you can see the first uh, uh, d- pieces of damage. Then if you spray, uh, you'll find that uh, those that are going to hatch out over the next two weeks, they'll get controlled. And uh, you might, you'll find that they'll, they'll, they're a problem usually in springtime uh, and, and around about mid-spring you'll find, get your first wave. Nothing happens normally in the middle of summer. It's too hot for them. Although this season might be a bit different. And then you'll get another wave of them in autumn. And so I think if you watch out in, say, mid-spring and uh, early autumn for first signs, put on your spray then, that should give you the control you're looking for. Good luck with it, Henry. Thanks for your call. 25 to 9 to Manham. Kim's on the phone. Hello, Kim. Good morning, friends. How are you? I'm, I'm excellent. I'm just sitting here in my nice, quiet reclining chair, speaking, speaking to someone who I would like to get in, into a choir. <laughs> you mean John Lamb, of course. <laughs> oh, well, well. No, no. no. You, you, <laughs> that that you would not be a good idea. Home, boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, how can we help in the garden, Kim? Uh, for John, really, last year I spoke to John about my mulberry tree and he said off with his head and I did and then I thought what have I done what have I done because it is growing now half a dozen branches or twigs reaching for the sky one or two growing diagonal and one across the ground so what do I do now do I prune it now or do I wait for for when the middle middle of winter um, well, I think you do some pruning now, uh, and uh, if you stay tuned, it's one of the issues that John Stevens, the horticulturalist, is going to talk about. But uh, you, you say that I recommended you off with its head in the middle of winter. Are you sure that was me providing that advice? You weren't listening to another program? 
I'm trying to think of what, what, how long ago it was, well, whether was it in the middle of winter or... If you had a, a fruit tree, uh, I would not be recommending that you give it a very strong off-with-its-head kind of treatment in the middle of winter because what that does is it encourages into strong growth and that's what you're describing. It's gone into strong growth and you've upset the hormone balance and so you don't get any fruit this year. Uh, what you need to do is now or soon when uh, you think that we're not going to get any heat wavy conditions is to summer prune, take out the branches which are going towards the centre and, and, and just balance it up. Now don't give it a short back and sides but just uh, train it and, and get your shape right and the branches which are long and strong, cut those back maybe by 10 or 15% and if you get very strong side branches cut those back by about 15% so a summer prune will allow the plant to settle down whereas if you wait till next winter and give it a short back and sides again well you'll end up with the same problem Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Spence Denny on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill Spence, if you could peek into the backyards of home gardens across Adelaide and the hills and probably well beyond, you would be surprised, or you probably wouldn't be surprised, at the number of fruit trees in people's backyards. And it's why South Australia is often called the fruit salad state. Well, it's harvest time for particularly stone fruits at the moment, and that's in full swing. And uh, there are, I think, uh, some pretty good crops out there and some also some disappointing ones. And that's been reflected, I think, in some of the texts that are coming through, to, uh, Spence. But uh, uh, after harvest, um, many gardeners sort of say, right, oh, well, that was good. Um, and then they say, right, I'll get involved with some other parts of the garden. And they turn their back on their fruit trees. Is that a good thing to do? John Stevens is a wonderful horticulturalist. Uh, he's uh, been providing uh, very sound advice on, on fruit and vegetables, both commercially and uh, home gardeners for many years. He's also a very strong member of the Rare Fruit Society, and he also presents a talkback gardening program on his local FM down uh, uh, Victor Harbour Way. So good morning to you, John, and welcome back to Talkback Gardening. Uh, good morning, John, and good morning, uh, listeners. Uh, it's been a while, but uh, here we are. <laughs> well, nice to hear your voice again. Could you explain why turning your back on your fruit trees at the end of harvest is probably not a good thing to do? No, look, absolutely not. What happens is, and, and this is particularly true in a Mediterranean climate uh, like South Australia, which is really relatively mild by world standards, uh, what happens is as uh, soon as the last fruit either falls or you pick it, uh, the trees think, right, that's it. I've done my bit. I've, I've produced fruit, which will have seeds, and they start putting on all this new growth. Now, the trouble is that for a, a home gardener or anybody else who wants to grow fruit, that's uh, the worst thing you can do because uh, that long uh, wispy growth that you all notice that takes off like a rocket almost immediately uh, will usually never produce uh, fruit, uh, at least not in the short term. Uh, but what happens is the tree puts the energy into this whippy growth uh, at the expense of uh, starting to uh, fatten up uh, new fruit buds for next year. So in in essence, you'll actually end up with less fruit next year uh, or even uh, sometimes none at all if the tree puts all its energy into this whippy growth. So um, the best way to deal with this and ensure you have a good crop for next year is to put uh, to remove the whippy growth. Uh, don't butcher the tree and cut it right back, but just cut back all that uh, long, wispy growth and uh, then uh, start thinking about immediately feeding your tree uh, uh, and uh, make sure you keep the water up and keep the weeds away because what you're now doing is ensuring that you will get a good 
crop of fruit next year because it produces all these new fruit buds. Okay, we need to stop at this particular point and drill down on some of those issues. You mentioned a number of things. One is the pruning, and we'll drill down onto the summer pruning in a second. And then watering is pretty vital, and many people say, look, oh, well, we won't bother to water. And, and fertilising. And, uh, so let's talk about those in a little bit more detail, John. Um, yep. Uh, summer pruning. Uh, so you're sort of saying that whippy growth uh, should be removed uh, should you cut it back altogether or are you just shortening it and then should you also then uh, take the advantage of uh, say uh, if you wanted to a tree that's growing a little bit too tall and you wanted to reduce its height uh, is it too late in the season uh, to summer prune from a a, 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 pl- a tree height point of view no look uh, uh, absolutely not um, providing you do it immediately um uh, after you've picked or the last uh, fruit's fallen um, because what happens is um, uh, plants don't waste time like human beings do. As soon as they finish their crop, that's it. Uh, they put on the new growth. But uh, you're quite right, um, and I like to keep my trees. Uh, a lot of trees I've got these days are dwarf ones, but I've got several that are not. And I make sure that I keep them to a compact size. And in my case, it's about two and a half to three metres high and about the same across for stone fruits. Um, and, uh, and that way you do uh, uh, get a very compact tree, which is easier to manage. On that particular point, John, many people say, right, I've got to reduce the height of my fruit trees, and they do what's been suggested on the program shortly uh, a little while ago, is that in the winter uh, they give it a short back and sides. Presumably uh, you're suggesting that winter is not the time to reduce the height of the tree, but summer is. Yeah. Look, uh, in in general... um uh, I belong to uh, what some call the new school of thought that because our Mediterranean climate is very mild, <clears throat> I actually don't butcher my trees and cut them back very hard in winter. Uh, I, I actually put more emphasis on uh, this pruning now, the summer pruning, uh, shape the tree, and certainly by winter there will be a li- little bit more new growth and uh, you have to take each tree um, uh, as an individual. Um, I've got a couple of trees that will uh, put on a little bit more growth for winter, but certainly the uh, I, I personally don't subscribe to the old European idea because of their cold climate where they uh, cut the tree right back really hard. Um, and the reason for that is, In South Australia and other Mediterranean climate areas, we often get warm or even hot weather in spring. And uh, over a lifetime of uh, working uh, with plants, I found that uh, in many cases, the old-fashioned winter uh, hackback, as I call it, uh, results in a lot of fresh, very soft growth in spring, which can often then be burnt to a crisp Uh, causing a great deal of harm to the trees. Okay. Well, I I think we've got the message that uh, uh, rather than prune for size in winter, you do that in summer and certainly uh, just after harvest is an excellent time. So we then come to another uh, thing that the old-fashioned books, the uh, old-fashioned advice, I suppose, is uh, you fertilise at the end of winter or you fertilise in springtime. And most people put their still do... uh, most home gardeners, at least, put their fertiliser on their fruit trees in early in springtime, whereas commercial growers, and I suspect you're subscribing to the concept that uh, maybe after harvest is the time people should be not putting on all their fertiliser, but is a good time to look at uh, crop nutrition. Yep. Look, uh, absolutely. I, I tend to um, feed all my uh, fruit trees, and, and by the way, that includes citrus trees as well. Um, it's not a good idea to feed in winter because most trees and even citrus trees are dormant or semi-dormant in winter. And so uh, I feed 
usually about uh, very late August, early September, uh, to give a bit of a boost for spring. And then again, uh, about now, sort of uh, February. And uh, when people ask me for months, I usually say, uh, depending on where you live, uh, I, uh, here at Victor, I feed my trees about uh, the last week in August, uh, first weeks, a uh, couple of weeks in September, and then again uh, in February, uh, stretching into uh, early March. But, uh, yeah, that's about the time I feed them twice right. a year. So fertilising after harvest, and uh, I think I mentioned on the program earlier on that uh, there's, at this stage still 16 weeks of, of this season to go before uh, uh, winter takes over. So fertilising is important after harvest. Uh, the other area, watering. People say, right, oh, well, look, we, we water particularly just before harvest because most of the uh, fruit size at that stage is water, but uh, having harvested, they say, right, well, the tree can certainly look after itself. Now, this season, it probably will. But in a normal season, why should you water, uh, uh, continue watering after harvest? Well, uh, one of the most important reasons for that is that, um, uh, as we've said, the, the buds start developing for next year uh, immediately uh, after harvest and when you've done your uh, uh, summer prune. Now, what happens is so all through winter, although theoretically everybody refers to the trees as dormant, uh, plants never actually sleep, as you know. And what happens is all through winter, uh, the plant is fattening up those buds, ready to have a, a sudden uh, burst uh, of the energy uh, in the form of the flowers, uh, which in turn will be the fruit. And they do that in early spring. So um, they need all that energy that they've stored up and that activity that's been going on with the buds in winter to produce a good uh, display in spring. Now, what happens is if you don't water them, um, and as you say, uh, this year is a bit different, but in a normal year, if you don't water them and they start to get dry, uh, the, the tree will often abort the uh, flowers uh, or they'll just shrivel up and the tree will be struggling to have enough uh, moisture and, for that matter, nutrient, because if the soil dries out, um, the tree uh, goes into survival mode. And uh, that means that generally they will often uh, drop the blossom. Uh, and this is particularly noticeable with uh, almonds and peaches, um, that if they're allowed to dry out, they'll often uh, drop their uh, blossom. And if they've got very young fruit just starting, they'll drop that too. And so you could end up with no crop. John Stevens is with us, consulting horticulturalist specialist in fruit and veggies. In fact, Graham, I think, uh, would appreciate your advice here. John, Graham's phoning from Blackwood. Morning, jo uh, Graham. Morning. How are you? Good, thank you. Now, you've got a question about your pear tree. Yes, the pear tree, I've got very wispy growth growing rapidly on it. Uh, each year and I cut it back but I wonder if I should actually paint where I cut. Yes, look um, pears are probably the most vigorous of, of uh, um, the, the sort of uh, uh, that group of plants they're, they're, more, they're more vigorous than apples for example and uh, uh, pears will put on a lot of growth I've now got three dwarf pears and uh, I've actually, they've got good crops on at the moment, but they haven't finished. But I've been tip pruning them uh, over summer. And um, also uh, in this time of the year, once my pears still haven't, are not ready yet. But uh, if, if you uh, do prune them, summer prune them, anything I usually uh, feel uh, thicker than a pencil uh, should be painted because um, despite the uh, idea that was promoted in recent years about not painting cuts, at the end of the day, an exposed cut is a possible entry point for fungal disease. And uh, despite what some of the new uh, uh, practitioners uh, say, uh, I still paint cuts 
if they're bigger than about a pencil thickness. Okay. Hey, uh, Graham, thanks for the question. Just a quick one, John, and this has come up a few times, and it's one I've got as well. When you talk about this whippy growth, and on, on my Satsuma, I had branches that were maybe a metre and a half, two metres long. And, and John briefly brought this up last week, John Lamb, um, and I cut off about a third of that whippy growth. Is that enough, too much, or should I have cut uh, off more? Yeah, look... I, coincidentally, I've got a Satsuma uh, as well, and although it's supposed to be a dwarf one, and, and I guess it is, it still produces long, sappy growth, and uh, I actually cut um, uh, that off if it gets a bit too uh, long. I cut it off even in the middle of summer, not not right down, but I shorten it yeah. um, because uh, – it's the old story of I want the tree to continue to put energy into the fruit. Uh, I've now picked my satsumas, uh, and as a result, I did that what last week, I think, and I, as a result, I've now cut the the long growth uh, back. But, uh, yeah, it, it satsumas and most of the Japanese plums uh, are very vigorous. Um, depending on the vigor of the tree, uh, in my case, I cut back um uh, probably about 40% uh, of uh, all the whippy growth initially okay. all yeah. right and and another question has come through for you john is um what fertilizer you actually use on your fruit trees um particularly uh, at this time of the year yep okay well look i'm uh, a totally organic gardener i use um one of the uh, chicken feed uh, or chicken manure um, based feeds. Um, there's numerous brands, but something like Neutrog Pellets or Dynamic Lifter, uh, they're pretty well the same. And there are some other generic brands, but they're based on chicken manure. And I use those. And according to the individual manufacturer, uh, the suggested rate may, might vary, but uh, depending on the size of the uh, tree, I'd probably put. Um, uh, two or three uh, good handfuls around the tree. And uh, because of uh, the fact that um, Australian soils, by and large, are often a little bit mineral deficient, uh, I use a light sprinkling of uh, complete mineral mix. And uh, you can also use liquid um, fertilisers as various brands but make sure, uh, well, at least from my point of view, uh, I use organic ones uh, which are based on seaweed uh, and some of them uh, have uh, uh, organic micro uh, um, fertilizer added to them as well. Uh, but they, they're all very reliable. Fascinating information from John Stevens. Lovely talking to you, John. And as you mentioned, uh, uh, we have moved on, I think, uh, in the last uh, uh, century. And uh, how we grow fruit and vegetables in South Australia is very different to how they grow it in Europe and uh, uh, the information that's been around for a long time and even the information that's often sort of promoted uh, even recently in, in eastern states is, is sometimes not relevant to South Australia. Australia. We have a different climate, and uh, I think uh, people like yourself, John, are very, very good in making us aware that we don't have to stick to the old rigid rules uh, and that uh, experimenting, trying out what works for you. And I think uh, our commercial fruit growers are leading the way. And if we can follow what the commercial growers are doing, and that's what we do often on this program, is get their information and put it into home garden relevance. We learn a lot as home gardeners. So look forward very much to uh, talking talking to you next time, John Stevens. Yes, my, my pleasure uh, and uh, happy to uh, uh, join in any time. Thank you, John. John Stevens on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Uh, Judy has been waiting very patiently at Athelston. Hello, Judy. Yes, good morning. Um, can you grow an instant lawn, a buffalo lawn, in uh, the middle of April? Oh, yes. Instant lawn can be actually laid very successfully 12 months of the year. 
and you'll find that uh, the lawn specialists, even in the middle of winter when it's frosty, will still lay out their lawns. Uh, they're just a little bit more cautious in, uh, in the preparation they do. And certainly during summer, in the middle of summer, putting out the lawn, providing you've prepared your soil and got things ready, uh, that's not a problem. And around about April would be a very, very, very good time. Spend time preparing the soil beforehand and it's how you look after that turf when it's laid for the next week. The first week is critical, so uh, just follow the instructions that you're given and you are sure to be successful. I'm very happy with my um, buffalo this year. It just looks amazing. It's beautiful. I followed your advice with not cutting it too short and letting some vigour get into the root system, so it looks fantastic. Uh, Robert is at Enfield. Hello, Robert. Good morning. How can we help, Robert? Um, yes, I've got uh, zucchinis. I, uh, they're the blackjack variety, and um, they're not doing any good. Actually, I've pulled them out. But uh, the leaves only grew to about oh, a third or a quarter of the normal size, and out of the four plants, I've got one zucchini, and the rest, uh, they get to about 70 centimetres, and they just die off. So the plants are actually not growing. They get to a certain size and then stop. Yeah. I've grown them other years and they've done all right. Uh, other plant- years I've had them. Are these growing in the same area as you grew last time? No, I've planted them in a different position. Good boy. Okay. Um, <laughs> and what's happening to the tip growth in particular? When you know, they, start, they come out, they start growing and then they slow down. Could you just describe in particular what's happening to the tip growth and the new leaves, the first two sets of leaves uh, in terms of their colour? Well, give me a clue. Oh, uh, the, the fruit itself, it'll grow to about um, 70, mil, 70 mils. So you've got, when you say they've stopped growing, uh, my perception is you're saying that the plant will grow and then it stops growing. How much, how much tendril growth have you got before it stops growing? Um, and uh, well, I presume that why, when that temporal growth is growing, it's produce, is it producing flowers? So first of all, how, lo- how, how long are the tendrils? Uh, pardon my ignorance, but what you, when you say tendrils... Well, well, you know, when it comes out, uh, they don't produce branches. They produce long, thin, skinny, what I call tendrils. That's what the, the leaves and the flowers grow on. Okay. Uh, they... Uh, the leaves would be about six inches long. Yeah, okay. Um, I think you've got probably a stress problem there. It, it's been a bad season for zucchinis and uh, all the kind of the kirkabits. Um, I would be looking at what's going on in the soil. There's been something that either too wet or too dry or it's, it's getting in between. It's got a, a stress in between. So I think uh, you just need to try and look at uh, what's happening to the soil and see if you can't work that one out yourself. Robert, um, good luck with that uh, because zucchinis, when they get going, Wow, they really get going, That's don't right, they? Yes, yeah. yes. Not far away from the news, uh, someone texts through saying they very much appreciated the informative talk that John Stevens just had with us. So thank you for your text message. Spence, we've just experienced our first mini heat wave for the season. And uh, the question is, is this the hottest part of this summer? And uh, are we going to get hot weather in in the future. Well, it just so happens that next Saturday is the first Saturday of the month, and that's when... Uh, uh, Darren Ray. <laughs> Darren Ray. Yeah. How could I forget Darren Ray's name? Will be our guest, and he'll take a look at uh, what's going to happen in terms of heat waves. And in particular, has uh, the El Nino going to turn into a La Nino? But that's until next week, and until then, I'll say good gardening.